0: at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. Welcome to Mountain View Fellowship. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege this morning to get to speak to you. Um, We are kicking off a new sermon series called the Summer Psalms, and it's going to be spectacular. Um, One of the questions that gets asked to us often is, how do you determine kind of what's your process for figuring out what your sermon series are going to be? Well, first of all, we tend to pray about it um, and let God kind of guide us. But then we also just kind of look at, well, what we think will help all of us grow, take a new step with God, as well as what we think we're passionate about and what we want to share. In this case, the Psalms, uh, we thought it would be a great thing to walk through them as a new way for us to grow in some new directions with God, uh, to deepen our relationship with Him, Uh, to have some kind of new interactions as we learn maybe new ways of worshiping Him, glorifying Him, loving Him, and loving those around us. In other words, we thought the Psalms would be just a great way to take a new step in our spiritual journey. And one of the things that happens during sermons is we often give you some tools. And the thought is we give you tools so that it goes beyond just Sunday morning. So, you know, it's great that you're here and you're listening and engaging, but then we want you to continue to do that the rest of the week, because that's when it's important. And so this morning, uh, I'm going to give you some information, some tools uh, to kind of help us with the Psalms. But the thought is they're just not for your head. They only have value if you go ahead and use them during the week, okay? So we begin with, what's the deal with the Psalms? Um, if you ask different people about the Psalms, you'll probably get a number of different answers of what they're all about. Um, for instance, if you ask our worship pastor, Pastor Tim... Of course, he's going to say they're all songs and prayers to God um, about worship. And uh, there's 20 mega themes, and those mega themes are everything about Jesus and faith and obedience and worship. If you ask our outreach pastor, Ryan, uh, he'll say, well, you know, the Psalms are divided into five little subgroups, and uh, those kind of help us with some different positions of God, how God is beside us and before us, around us, above us. And among us. If you ask Pastor Don, he'll say, Well, life sometimes has storms. And the Psalms are about those storms and the fact that God is sovereign over all of them and He's with us through them all. Uh, There's an author I really enjoy. His name is Eugene Peterson. Uh, Eugene says it this way The Psalms are prayers that God uses to work His will in our bodies and our souls. I think all of those descriptions are correct because the, the Psalms are pretty broad. They cover a lot of different things. But the big thing is the Psalms are there because we lived in a messed up, jacked up, fallen world, right? As well as we live with a bunch of people who are messed up as well, including ourselves. And so the Psalms can help us with that. There's a lot of emotion in the Psalms, heavy emotion. There are several psalms where it seems like they're just shaking their fist at God out of frustration and anger. There are other ones that are deep, deep sorrow. And still others are just exuberant, maybe even over-the-top kind of praise and joy. I think the psalms show us how we can interact with God. Um, For instance, in the psalms, there are 29 different calls for God to listen to somebody's prayer, okay? All 29 are different. Which to me says that, well, our prayers and our interaction with God can be authentic. Wherever we are, we can just express ourselves. When we pray, it's not a magic spell. We don't have to say the right words in the right order the right way. We can just interact with God. And that's a relationship. Now, I know as well, in the last couple of weeks, I've been talking to people about psalms. And there's quite a few folks that just they struggle with the psalms. Um, maybe they know a couple of them, but they haven't really read them all, or they just don't get into them. And why is this? I think for a lot of us, it's because the Psalms are a little bit confusing. They use language we're not used to. They are in the form of poetry. And a lot of us spend time reading poetry. Um, And sometimes that Psalm just seem really harsh, or overly depressed, or violent even, or we just don't connect with them. I think part of the issue is the Psalms are actually Hebrew poetry and we're not Hebrews. So it's a little different than we're used to. Um, For instance, you know, we're used to things rhyming and stuff and Hebrew poetry doesn't do that. Um, It's not the roses are red, violets are blue, hallmark approach to to poems, right? They're pretty different. Or they're not even like poems like this one that was drilled in my head in seventh grade doing a poetry thing. I think I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. Whatever that means, right? But Hebrew poetry is, again, a little different. And we have to be able to figure out how to get into it because actually a third of the Bible is poetry. And so if we just kind of avoid all that, we're missing a huge part of what God wants to tell us. Now, in Hebrew poetry, we're not going to find rhyming words. It's much more like kind of free verse, if you will. But it expands upon things. It brings emotion into things. It's kind of like a technicolor for black and white movies, right? It kind of livens it. It arouses our emotions. It stimulates our imagination. It appeals to our will. For instance, this is a a narrative out of Exodus. Then Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the Lord opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. The wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land. Okay, this is a narrative pretty straightforward. Probably have heard it if you've been in church very much. Um, you're probably familiar with it. Maybe too familiar with it, right? There's not a lot of wow when we talk about the Red Sea thing. We're just kind of used to it. Right after this, in the next chapter, Moses sings a song. He has a poem. And one of the lines is this. At the blasts of your nostrils, the water's piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. Wow, that sounds a little bit more. Instead of just God having a wind show up, he blasted it with his nostrils. The seas congealed into walls that they walked down. Do you feel a little different there? You can start to see the awe. You kind of bring in some of the emotion that was happening. Now, there's a couple key things to keep in mind as we do Hebrew poetry. The first one is, it's a lot of what are called couplets and triplets. Uh, There's parallelism is the other way it's called. Basically, you'll see things in two lines or three lines, sometimes even four lines, okay? These lines are always related, but different. And the differences can be for a number of reasons. Let's look at Psalm uh, 88.3. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. They're similar, but they're slightly different. Those differences can come in a lot of forms. The differences could be to contrast, just to show us something very, very different. The differences could be just to complete the thought. It can also be a progression, kind of a one-upmanship, continuing to draw things up. And I've kind of learned something that when you um, are reading Psalms, sometimes you just need to add the words, what's even more, okay? And it goes like this on the second line. I am overwhelmed with my troubles. What's even more? My life draws near to death. You hear the conviction, the drama maybe a little bit more that way? It comes out. Um, The other thing that Hebrew poetry does is it uses a lot of metaphors and wordplay. Metaphors, figurative language, it brings up a lot of symbols, kind of loops back on those symbols a lot of times. Um, There's also a lot of creative wordplay, just the way things are said, maybe not fully said until a little bit later, and it draws you in. Um, We miss some of the wordplay because they're Hebrew words often that there'll be one word and it means one thing and something, another Hebrew word that's very similar but different, and they'll use those two words, and we miss some of that. But there's still some pretty amazing things. Um, I kind of like to look at the Psalms a little like really good country music, okay? Okay really good country music has a lot of wordplay in it it has a lot of things that draw you in there's some parts of the story or whatever you don't expect to come in for instance great classic song uh george jones he stopped loving her today okay some of you are starting to hum it already okay in that song he never actually says why he stopped loving her it's because he's dead that's why if you listen to the story, he's dead. That's why he stopped. Okay? How about um, George Strait, the chair? Okay? At the end, there's that nice little hook. Oh, the chair wasn't even mine. Right? Makes you rethink the whole story. Okay? Or how about uh, Brad Paisley's "Ticks"? All right. It's not totally appropriate. Okay? I won't go through those lines. But it's that sort of thing where he says something, and you're following along, and then you go, oh, that's what he means. Okay? The Psalms are that way. They are absolutely brilliant. There are things there that just catch you. You don't expect it, and suddenly, wow, okay. And it takes kind of rereading sometimes to see that brilliance. Oftentimes, the symbols that are used in Hebrew poetry come from narratives. And when it's possible, it's also helpful to read the narrative along with the poetry at the same time. Because, again, the narrative is going to give us some of those symbols that the poetry is going to play off of. And the poetry is going to illuminate a bunch of things about the narrative, the feelings, the emotions, what's going on. It's like the Red Sea example we just did, but here's another one, Psalm 51. Psalm 51 starts this way. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins." let's be honest, it's kind of starting with what could be seen as kind of a a generic kind of repentance, regret of sin, okay? Um, You know, it's church, so we're kind of pious. We kind of, you know, that's what we're supposed to say, right? In this case, just before it, a number of the Psalms will have a little title just before it. In this one, it says this, For the choir director, a psalm of David regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba oh, this is real life here that he's talking about. This is dirty and nasty sin that's happened. And then if you go back and you look in the Old Testament at the narrative that matches this, you'll find it in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Um, Can't read the whole thing here just because of time, but here's the summary. David is up on a rooftop. He sees Bathsheba taking a bath. He lusts for her. He sends some people to get her and bring her in. He doesn't invite her. He just brings her to the palace, and he has sex with her. Finds out she's pregnant later. There's a problem. She has a husband. His name is Uriah. Uriah is one of David's generals. So David works it out that Uriah gets killed in battle. And once Uriah is dead, he goes ahead and has Bathsheba become one of his wives. Okay? A little while later, there's a prophet in the the courts of David named Nathan, God tells Nathan, go confront him. Nathan tells this great story about this little sheep that this man loves, and some other guy comes and just steals the sheep. Okay? David, being a shepherd, gets incised. He's angry. He says, who is this man? We need to do something about it. And Nathan says, you, you are this man. You have turned your back on God, and you have sinned against him. What's David's reaction? Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Has a completely different rhythm now, doesn't it? And as we read through it, we'll see this isn't just some exercise he's doing about sin and asking for forgiveness. It's heartfelt. And that's what the Psalms do for us. They bring it in. Again, knowing that narrative helps tremendously. There's a song out right now, uh, Damn Straight by Scott McCready, right? And that song, if you know George Strait's songs, the song makes a lot more sense. And so as you read the Psalms, you've got to also know the rest of the Old Testament because all of that is going to be pulled into it from time to time. Another quick tool I want to give you as we start the Psalms is just that there are a lot of different styles of Psalms. Uh, The little bookmarks that are on your chair, one side of it has 10 different styles kind of listed at the top. Um, And you do different commentaries and things, you'll find sometimes there's some that have like 30 different types, whatever. Um, These 10 are kind of the main ones, and you'll see that no psalm is necessarily just one type. Sometimes it's a blend. But the the bookmark might help you a little bit through that. The four main types of psalms that you're going to encounter just in numbers. The first one is praise. Praise is songs that are intended when life is going good and you want to celebrate with God. Lament is exactly opposite. Lament are songs of disorientation, times when people are distressed, they're going through storms. Wisdom psalms are basically when God gives his wisdom on how you can have a flourishing and thriving life, particularly with him. Messianic psalms, those are the ones about Jesus. Now, Jesus taught us that all of Scripture points to him. When you read everything in Scripture, it's about Jesus. He's the central character of Scripture. But there are some Psalms that just kind of bring this out a little bit more. They really focus a little bit more on Him being the King, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, that He's setting up an eternal kingdom. And so those Messianic Psalms, um, they're just good to go through and kind of remember who Jesus is. This morning, I'm going to walk through Psalms 1 and 2, but before I do that, I still got just a little bit more background I need to give you, a little more context. And one of those things is, where did the Psalms come from? Most of the Psalms started out as hymns, and almost half of them are attributed to David. Um, He was writing these, and one of the things, he was writing them before the temple in Jerusalem was built. Um, It would be built later by his son, Solomon. Um, But... David longed for the temple. He longed for a place that he thought God was going to reside and humans could connect with God all the time. And so you'll see a lot of his psalms are really about this physical mountaintop, Zion, in in Jerusalem, and a garden and this temple that God would be. However, the psalms in the form that we have them now were actually compiled after the temple was destroyed. Babylon came in, wiped out Jerusalem, wiped out the temple. And so there was this problem. We don't have a temple anymore. How are we going to worship? And that's what the Psalms were compiled for. They were pulled together to form a way that people could still connect with God, that they could still pray to him even without the physical temple. And so the book of Psalms invites us to walk through life, walk through our emotions, relationships, storms we're going through, all the while praising and worshiping God. There's a little bit of structure to the book of Psalms. Um, As I mentioned before, it's actually divided into five subgroups. You'll find those when you read through. It'll say something like end of book one, beginning of book two. Um, But they're not just a collection. They aren't just, you know, different file folders that they put sheet music in and that was it. Um, It was really put together with some structure and some thought with God's brilliance again. And it's hard to see it if you just read here and there in the Psalms, but if you actually read from start to finish in order, you will see that they were crafted and arranged with purpose. There's some transitions that happen. For instance, the beginning of the Psalms start a lot with the nature of sin and man and and David's earthly kingdom. And it transitions by the time towards the end, it's about grace and about Jesus' spiritual kingdom. It goes from a lot of laments to a lot of praise. It goes from the physical mountaintop temple to Jesus' eternal temple that we can enter any time. It goes from confronting God about things to trusting and having a relationship with him. And then Psalm 1 and 2, um, they are the introduction to the book of Psalms. They were clearly written and, and put in when those psalms were compiled. And um, we're going to walk through those today. Armed with some of this background knowledge, I'm going to ask you to consider what your approach this summer is going to be to the psalms. You have a couple options. One is you just don't read them. You could do that. Not a valid option, I don't think, if you want to walk forward with God. They are so important. So it's good for us to read them this summer together. The second thing we can do is we can pick and choose which psalms we read. And that's okay. Um, That's what we're going to do in the sermon series. Um, As as Pastor Tim mentioned, there's 150 of them. It would take us three years plus for us to do it every weekend, right? Or, I don't know, you guys want some four-hour sermons and we could cover a bunch at once, maybe? Um, So instead, we're going to pick and choose a little bit. And even in our own life, picking and choosing through the Psalms is an okay thing. Um, We connect with some better than others. But... Just like the rest of the Bible, if you pick and choose what you read, you're going to miss a ton because it's important to see the whole spectrum of what God wants to say. And so another option would be to pray to Jesus through them all in order. I think God put the Psalms in the center of our Bible for a purpose. It's the center. Literally, if you take a Bible and split it in half, it almost always opens up to the Psalms, okay? I think they all have value. Granted, yes, we may not all connect with them immediately just because of the phase of life we're in and how we're feeling and the situations we're in. Uh, personally, for the first 24 years of my 31 years walking with Christ, I picked and choose. I just There were some that I liked and others I, I just didn't. Um, about seven years ago, I started reading them regularly in order. And it's amazing what God has revealed. And I've been able to see him in a different way by doing that really smart guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He said, The Psalms is the prayer book of Jesus Christ in the truest sense of the word. They are prayers, first and foremost, to Christ. And approaching it that way will help you through some of those psalms that are a little more difficult. A more contemporary academic, N.T. Wright, says it this way. Here's the challenge for those who take the New Testament seriously. Try singing those psalms chronologically. Thinking of Jesus as their ultimate fulfillment See how they sound, what they do, and where they take you. We can offer to Jesus our prayers, our praise, our laments, our trusts, our doubts, our meditations as we read and pray and sing the Psalms. And so this summer, we just want to give you a challenge during the course of the summer. Um, you got a couple options here. Both are valid, but pick one of them and, and kind of commit and do it. The first one is to read and then reread and pray through a single psalm each week. The bookmarks you have, one side, you'll see it's got the different weeks of the summer and it's got a, a psalm picked out for you to read, of the different types. I think it's Psalm 27 this week. And so this challenge is taking Psalm 27, read it, reread it, keep reading through it during the week and see what God reveals. Challenge two is maybe the bigger one, the other side, all 150. Um, If you read five a day, in a month you're done. You read two or three a day, in two months you're done. So maybe do that. Read a couple each day, praying through them, and and see if you can see the progression that God may want to show you. Okay? All right. Finally, we can get to Psalm 1 and 2. Um, It's often very good for us when we start into Scripture to pray first. So let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning that we do get to praise and worship you here together as a body. Thank you for this incredible book of Psalms, this poetry, this illumination of emotions and ways that we can interact with you. Holy Spirit, be with us as we open this up. and Just illuminate the text, show us things, uh, things not just for our head, but things that are going to transform our heart and our spirit. And Jesus, thank you for loving our, us first. In your name, amen. All right, Psalm One. Um, the little bookmark says that Psalm One is a wisdom psalm, so it gives us a clue. It's going to be about how to thrive in life, and it begins this way: "Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on God's law he meditates day and night." So to begin with, it starts with a triplet. Notice there's three sections here, three little pieces. And in that triplet, if you stand back and you kind of look at some of the verbs, you'll see walks, stands, and sits kind of jumps out. And the other thing is who we're doing that with. The wicked, sinners, and scoffers. This is the way it kind of looks. So when we walk with somebody, we kind of have a conversation. We're generally going in the same direction. And it's saying we shouldn't walk with the wicked. Now, in in Old Testament, in the Bible, the wicked are people who basically their minds are on themselves, their own selfishness, and not on God, okay? So that's where their thoughts are. And if we walk with somebody long enough, eventually we're going to end up kind of standing with them a bit. Now, on the positive side, many of you probably this morning out in the lobby stood around in a circle and you shared what's going on in your life. Well, in this case, if we're standing with sinners, it's not good. Sinners, in this case, are people who are actually taking action. They are actively doing things that God is telling them not to. And so, we're standing with them, we're starting to kind of, well, kind of settle in a bit. And then the next step is actually to sit with scoffers, to sit down. And when we sit down, boy, we really settle in, don't we, right? And we get comfortable where we're at. Now, in Scripture, scoffers or mockers, depending on the translation, are really looked down upon. The book of Proverbs really goes into that quite a bit. And you see, the thing is, is that, you know, we joke about mocking one another maybe, but what the Bible uses that word for is actually something a little different. It's people who are questioning God, which is what the enemy did in the Garden of Eden, for instance, right? Did God really say that? Are you really going to die is there even really a God? I mean, come on. Aren't you in charge of your own destiny? That's scoffing, right? Kind of makes sense. And so you can see this progression. It starts pretty simply just walking along that path. And then you start to settle in until finally you're just in it and settled. This, the second verse kind of gives us the opposite of that or what we're supposed to do instead. Maybe to help us not go down that path. We are to delight in the law of the Lord, and on his law, meditate day and night. Okay? Meditating in the Bible means something different than our culture does. Our culture talks about meditating. Maybe you're saying something over and over, and you're you're humming, and, and it's about emptying your mind and becoming one with the universe, right? The Bible, it's exactly opposite. When we meditate, we are being filled with God. We are filling ourselves with Scripture, on what to think. Okay? Uh, in Hebrew, the word is haga. Can you guys say that with me? On the count of three. Haga. There we go. One, two, three. You got it. It's just a fun word. Haga. Right? Okay? Haga. The actual context is a, is a little bit more like chewing almost, right? Like you're sitting in there and you're just chewing over the scripture. You're just engaged in it. And you're haga ing, right? A little bit. It's just a great word. Uh, it's kind of like Paul in Philippians, um, it, where he tells us to think about whatever is noble and right and true and helpful. Now, just to take the pressure off, when you read the Psalms, the first time you read a passage or even a little couplet or whatever, you might miss some things. That's okay, okay? Even the second and third time, there may be some things you don't see right away. But stay after it. You keep haggah on it, and God's going to reveal things. He's going to show things to you. There's new layers of understanding and trust. It's a progression. You see, the Bible isn't meant to be read just once, you know, one and done. It is literature for a lifetime, particularly if we meditate, if we haga on it, okay? It's kind of like meeting somebody. The first time you meet them, you go, okay, two ears, two eyes, a nose and a mouth. Yep, they're human, right? And then over time, you get to know them, maybe a little bit recognize them, and go, oh, yeah, that's Mike. okay. But even over more time, you get to know beyond just the shallow stuff of what do you do and where do you live and that sort of stuff. And you start talking more into deeper things. You get to to know more about them until finally you're talking about life, about real things. That's what meditation is supposed to do with us and God. If we haga, what's going to happen is we go from just knowing God's there to knowing God and seeing Him in different ways. And particularly when we hagah through the Psalms, you are going to see different emotions and different things and start to see even God even has emotions, believe it or not. And so it's okay for us to relate to him through them. Now what's the benefit if we hagah, if we meditate? Those who do are like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Um, I've said it before that the tree metaphor or motif through the Bible is constant. You'll see trees pop up everywhere. And the thought is they are steadfast, they are strong, they are planted, they can be counted on. If I was a Hebrew and I heard this for the first time an Israelite, what I would suddenly think with some of the wording this year is actually a narrative. And it's back to the Garden of Eden. And this is the tree of life. It was on the stream, and it produced fruit, and it did not wither, and blessings came from it. And so basically the author here of the psalm is saying, if you haggah, if you're in God's word, you'll be blessed. You'll be almost returned to perfection in a way. And so it offers a nice contrast here between the way of the wicked and standing with the sinner and settling with the scoffer. For us instead to end up in a place that we get planted like a tree, planted steadfast. And the tree that we're planted next to is Christ, the cross. That's where we're heading. That's a much better way. The wicked, though, are not planted. It's not so for them. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff is the remains if you thresh uh, wheat. It's the outside covering of wheat um, or other kinds of grains. And basically, when the wind comes along, it just blows away. It's gone. Now, we all know something about wind, particularly this year, right? Wind just takes stuff away quickly, the the chaff, the tumbleweeds. uh, Small children this year. Um, But chaff, what they're trying to say is if you follow that path, you will be useless. You will be lost. There's eternal consequences for this too. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. If you're chaff, how can you stand up to judgment? What's even more, how can sinners stand in the congregation of the righteous? They just can't you notice there's some follow-up here that some of that, that language is coming back. Uh, the, the psalm is looping back on talking about the wicked and the sinners. It's t- back to looping on the way. There's the wrong way and then there's the way that leads to Christ. And you notice there's a blessing here. He knows the ways of the righteous, but if you don't follow that, it lights out. What's the meaning of Psalm 1? I think it's pretty simple. At the very beginning here, it's just saying there's, there's two choices you have in life. It's not a, an analog thing. It's not how, how much percentage-wise are you good. It's do you follow that path or do you follow this path? And you have to make a choice. Psalm 1 is kind of like a signpost for the rest of the psalms. It's basically saying, hey, if you're going to enter into these psalms, know that this is the choice you have to make. Are you going to meditate on all this or is it just going to blow away and so are you? Right? Then we enter into Psalm 2. It goes right away into it, okay? Psalm 2, a couple things. Um, The bookmark will tell you that this is a messianic psalm. It's about Jesus. It pulls it in. Um, It has a structure of about 12 verses, which are kind of grouped together in four groups of three. And that's how we'll walk through this real quick. Why Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and even more, free ourselves from the slavery to God. Um, it's kind of interesting, this word "plots" that's how English we, we translate it. In Hebrew, it's the word haggah. And so it's basically the same thing. Instead of meditating in God's word, they are hagaing, they are ruminating and chewing on their plans against God. Basically, they're scheming is another way to look at it. They're scheming against God. They're basically talking about doing what's good in their own eyes. We don't need God. We don't need organized religion or whatever. We're going to free ourselves from that slavery. And without realizing it, they're basically chaining themselves to slavery, to sin instead. What's God's reaction? But the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. It's kind of picking up that thing about scoffing, sitting in the chair, scoffing God, now he's turning the tables. And then in anger, he rebukes them, terrifying them with this fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king, Jesus, on the throne in Jerusalem on my holy mountain. God's saying, you think you are kings. <laughs> There's one true king, and his name is Jesus. And the king proclaims that the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, and today I have become your father. Psalm 2 is echoed tons through the New Testament. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus gets baptized. And the words that he hears as he comes up is, you are my dearly beloved son, and you bring me great joy. Straight off of this. Verse 8, only ask, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus has been given all authority over all things in heaven and earth. Or, if you think about our last sermon series, Colossians 1, Jesus is first and supreme over all. You will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. Um, He's going to be a king that has real authority, and he will exercise it in justice. The iron rod motif, that that gets pulled up um, a lot of times in the book of Revelation as Jesus has his return and his final rule over sin and evil and death. Next, we go to a warning at the end here. Now then, you kings, act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear. And even more than that, rejoice with trembling. You have a choice. Choose wisely. Submit to God's royal son, or he will become angry, and you will be destroyed in the midst of all of your activities, for his anger flares up in an instant. But what joy for all who take refuge in him! Sin always has consequences in this world and eternity. Selfishness, rebellion always has consequences. So, we should submit to God's royal son, Jesus. So, what's the meaning of Psalm 2? Well, it's pretty simple. Jesus is the only king. As Pastor Tim talked about a while back, he is the king of the true kingdom of light versus the counterfeit kingdom of sin and death. Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. And he is already victorious over every spiritual and human force in the world. Now, putting these two together, there's something interesting you might notice. The very first line of Psalm 1 starts with, Oh, the joys of those who do not do some of that stuff on that path. And then the last verse of Psalm 2 says, But what joy for all who take refuge in Christ. ESV uses the word blessed instead. This kind of echoing is called an inclusio. You can think of it like a parenthesis when you find them in Scripture. And it's basically saying, pay attention to what's in between. It's really important. Some inclusios are huge and some are small. But you can see Psalm 1 and 2 together. And what does it mean together? We have a choice. Follow our own way and our selfishness that way. Or take the choice of following the king. And that's what we need to think about all the way through the psalms. Those two things are the big themes throughout all of the psalms. And that's why Psalm 1 and 2 are at the beginning. Let's go ahead and pray together. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for these psalms. And I thank you the fact that this summer we're going to, as a body, have a chance to walk through many of them. I pray that you help us see things that we haven't noticed before that you are a God that's deeply involved in our lives. You're a God who's not afraid of our emotions. You're not afraid of the storms that we're going through and how we may react. But you ask us to choose. Are we going to try to do it on our own? Are we going to go through these storms by taking refuge in your son, Jesus? I thank you that the Psalms so clearly tell us how important it is for us to love and follow you through everything that we go through. Help us not walk down the wrong path and get comfortable and settle in with false teaching and false thinking. But help us know your truth. Help us come to the light. And Holy Spirit, just help us as we read these psalms that you will, again, illuminate the text for us and just open up our hearts so that we can walk in new ways with you. Jesus, thank you that you are our king and we can trust you no matter what. And that you loved us long before we loved you. It's in the name of the king that we pray, Jesus. Amen.